Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And it's time for our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us for better or worse. This month, we're going to be chatting about the console release of Stay Out of the House, The Grey Hill Incident, The System Shock Remake. We're going to take a quick break and then come back and we'll chat about Killer Frequency, Stasis Bone Totem, and Home Body to round us out. So, as always, Neil, this is a month that had a lot of variety to it and at the same time had AAA somewhat release in terms of, you know, something like System Shock, which is this remake that I find has kind of fallen under the radar a little bit, just in terms of when you look at the year as a whole, the sort of season that we're in of games, we're getting inundated with, you know, these big releases, Mm -hmm. both AAA and indie, seemingly on, you know, an every other day basis. And at the same time this year, you know, we've been uh, very fortunate to have a number of high profile horror remakes already, even have something like Silent Hill 2, little unknown game uh, coming out (laughs) later towards the end of the year. Um, so I'm really excited to you know dig into some of these that maybe haven't gotten quite the same amount of coverage that they should have perhaps, but at the same time highlighting one or two things that have not uh, you know been talked about just given their sort of relatively unknown indie status, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And you know I think it's quite telling that you know in a month where we've been able to cover two of the big games in horror this month in Layers of Fear and Amnesia the Bunker in their own separate episodes. We still have six games, yeah, yeah, which is still yeah. tip of the iceberg stuff. Really, uh, if you went down into it, and yeah, you know, there's much to say about all of them, you know. So, I think we've uh, got a, a cracking show in store. Yep. And where else to begin than with the console release of Stay Out of the House, which is one of those games that kind of proves like my memory not always serving me as well as it could, because I could have sworn this came out <laughs> early in 2023, but that does not uh, actually the case is this was released last October in 2022 and has now been brought to consoles. So in the latest from the indie horror Don Puppet Combo, Stay Out of the House continues his penchant for sleazy 80s PSX style experiences, but this time with an immersive sim twist that makes for a multidimensional and terrifying journey to avoid the clutches of the butcher. So as of late, I've been on somewhat of an immersive sim kick. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently wrote an article for Dread Central, which is not yet out, but I just submitted it. But I've basically done nothing but play Immersive Sims for like the better part of two weeks, you know, when I was getting over being sick and everything. Um, And Stay Out of the House is one that came to mind, especially after playing Amnesia, the bunker, right, which kind of is what has put the spotlight back on Immersive Sims within the horror space. absolutely. And, you know, Stay Out of the House is one of those games that, of course, whenever Puppet Combo releases something, uh, I find it has a good amount of fanfare behind it. But I don't necessarily know that Stay Out of the House was viewed with that immersive sim lens in the same way that something like The Bunker was praised Mm. for. Um, And, you know, in spending a lot more time with Stay Out of the House, initially it has a buildup that feels familiar, I'll say, to some of the other Puppet Combo games of just sort of planting the player into this time period, putting them through perhaps sort of a brief mundane aspect of just normal life where you're working like a clerk at a store. You spend the first part of that experience just like cleaning up. But then it kind of 
has a trajectory that goes into a realm that I don't necessarily know that we've had with a puppet combo game as of late. Um, something along the lines of like Murder House, very much in lieu with like survival horror yeah. classic kind of style. But with Stay Out of the House, there's a good amount of experimentation, but also the more that the player experiments, this game just becomes more and more rewarding to the degree that I didn't even necessarily understand that in my first playthrough. No. As I was going through it, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to kind of set my own almost objectives, like try to find the gun, try to find a key, these types of things. But I found that when I went back, when I was writing this article and just kind of haphazardly explored the house, I ended up finding that it's so much bigger of an environment that I thought it actually was. Um, and that is bigger in terms of like the scale of options rather than like, oh, there's a new level to this house. It's more along the lines of like rewarding players with that experimentation and finding that even if you do fuck up and die, something is going to be gained from that, whether it's a new piece of information about how to interact with the world, whether it's quite literally, you know, finding a new item that could help you in your escape or just giving like a hilarious anecdote mm -hmm. uh, for when, you know, I get together with people like you and we chat about our experiences with these types of things, which I've always found is kind of the root of immersive oh, sims. Yes. And it's what really fuels my sort of, I suppose, newly found obsession with them and that I'm like, oh, well, let me take big, stupid risks with things because more than likely I'm going to open up a new facet of gameplay that can aid me down the line or I'm going to get this hilarious story to share with somebody. Yeah. I mean, this is a game that I played, I think, at the beginning of the year because, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had it there from the Patreon for the combo, I think, and I just with the year end stuff, I never got around to it. You know, Halloween and October in general being very busy, and you don't always get to everything at once. And when you're not reviewing stuff, much easier to leave some games by the wayside until later. And then I don't know, I was going to bring it up, and then we just had like a deluge of stuff, and that's how it goes sometimes. It's not the first game to have that sort of fate, I suppose, in that regard, especially on this show. But yeah, I think Amnesia the Bunker really just brought it to the fore. And I'm glad that we covered that separately now because it would almost be unfair to have it that at this on the same show. Because yeah, what this was first, two on a smaller budget. And three, you know, I was talking to you before the show that Topic Combos games have had this sort of unfair criticism labeled upon them that they are just the same thing over and over again and i can see in some ways where that comes from when you consider label mates and the games that public combo publishes on torture star from other developers you know have been like wild favorites of ours like you know you know nobody lives under the lighthouse and uh Night at the Gates of Hell and stuff like that and Blood Wash, you do begin to go, okay, so this is what these people are doing and you're going to sort of up your game and evolve and in absolute credit, you know, public combo has because this, on the surface, very much appears like to be, oh, it's another one of those sort of things, experiences, which, you know, a welcome, you know, in the same way that, you know, most horror film in things that, that come out are welcome in that they deal in the certain tropes and certain ideas and 
their comfort, you know, rather than anything else. But then this quickly turns into something else. You know, it becomes, as you say, this um, immersive sim. And I, I genuinely felt a bit guilty when I saw Rapid Combo sort of posting out after Amnesia got all this praise you know, with the bunker and, you know, saying about, you know, this game getting forgotten a bit because of that. And it's like, um, you know, I understand why. You know, I've just told you, you know, myself that I missed out on it. And you said yourself, you thought it was this year and things like that. So that happens. I think part of the problem comes from that expectation of them being like, oh, this game is like that game is like that game. And the titles kind of bleeding into each other a bit in, in terms of how they come about. That sometimes you can just miss a game and go, shit, did I not play that one? And yeah, that's just the nature of the beast. You know, um it, to me it's um Night of the Creeps and Night and you know, Night of the Demons, isn't it? You know, whatever it is. You know, those <laughs> two films to me are just like interchangeable yeah. in my head in terms of knowing that they're not the same film, but that they I can never separate them. You know, that despite that. Because they are just too similar, and I think this maybe suffers a little from that. But yeah, where we sort of went on about amnesia, the bunker, and you know how you know, flexible it could be in a limited sense. Um, I think the basis for this, and it being very almost Texas Chainsaw in its style in terms of like getting away from the killer in a an enclosed environment and having all this I mean the game that comes to mind them also being a cannibal yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean and the thing that comes to my mind straight away with this game and not the first game from Public Combat to get this is Manhunt you know um, there's a strong vibe of that you know if Rockstar were to make it a Manhunt of today it would have immersive sim qualities to me because I think you'd have that that flexibility like that and again to get this on this scale yeah just blows my mind you know i I think it's you know when you said about covering this and i I had to go back to it to sort of play again sort of refresh myself because like unfortunately reviewing so many things games just blot out your memory for after a while you know like like, was that this year was that last year when was it and I thought, well, you know, I played again on PC, and it, yeah, it's just—it's really cool. The atmosphere is perfect. You know, it's that same classic puppet combo thing of like, it's not about recreating survival horror; it's about recreating an era of movies and VHS and things like that, and then making a game around that. But it's the most game-like thing. Yeah, it's the most video gamey thing puppet combo has probably made. In terms of like having you know mechanics and experimentation and being more hands-on than anything else before, but yeah, it's just but it's still fundamentally a puppet combo game in so many ways. Yeah, that's something that I think I'm really taken with with this. In that you know before recording, we were talking about how some people have a tendency to look at the puppet combo, whether it's puppet combo games or just the umbrella of games that fall under that torture star umbrella. And they have a tendency from a surface level to be like, it's more of the same. And with this, the ability to retain that, you know, very clearly 80s horror movie, sleazy aesthetic, but still continually 
push the mechanics and whatnot that are in these types of experiences, whether it be the urgency of the fact that, you know, there's this killer that to a certain point is unkillable that is pursuing you through the house or that can be alerted to you, right? Because stealth is a big part of this, which I was, again, something that was surprising to me, not that, you know, sneaking past a killer is new for horror, but just the fact that this entire house is abiding by that immersive sim quality of you can go one of two ways in terms of like, you could try to be more aggressive, you could try to play it safer, but the house itself is just as much a threat as this killer that... And, you know, the butcher as the killer, I think, is a continuation of that puppet combo penchant for just like instantly making killers seem like they're iconic in a way. Like that's been one thing that I've always been incredibly taken with the puppet combo games. But at the same time, a majority of the games have fallen underneath that torture star umbrella in that just from the poster of these games, you feel like there's a lineage and like a vast lore behind the killers that are in it, even if. Perhaps it's not always explored to the depth that some people would want, but I think that that is a testament to like the character models, the killer design, the fact that you know they their bodies almost speak to their history and whatnot, and their sort of longevity of what they've been doing. They've been doing it for a while. This didn't just start because the player showed yeah. up. The player has basically found themselves in this yeah. spider's web, except instead of a spider, it's you know a bag head serial cannibal. Yeah, and you know, is that not the most fundamental? approximation of what the old vhs era was right you mm-hmm. you could pick up a copy of something look at the front cover and go this looks like it's the best thing ever you know it, this looks like i should know all this already this killer on the front cover looks like a, it, they are some icon of the genre that i haven't seen before and you know that could be applied to any number of things that weren't actually that you know and this just has that vibe you know it has that you know you just picked it up off the store shelf in blockbuster or whatever and you're looking at it and going yeah this is what i want to watch on my saturday night and freak myself the fuck out yeah at the age of 13 or whatever you know and it, it <laughs> would be perfect that and given that's always been the directive and the vibe that, that public combo has gone for you know those killers um really do just sell it you know the, you know you have that perfect pack shot if you will you know that 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 gives you the game in a nutshell without really telling you everything you need to know just enough that to sell you on it and like saying here's my rental card give me this for the night i want this i want to watch this and um yeah it, it is probably one of the better examples because of the nature of the way the game plays out yeah and Again, just to reiterate, you know, this getting a console release and in addition to, you know, the Torture Star stuff, it's just great to see people that for whatever reason, whether they're not interested in PC gaming or, you know, they are not interested in buying a PC that can, you know, run games, even stuff like this that isn't necessarily the most graphically demanding games. It's just fantastic to see more people being able to be exposed to both Torture Star and Puppet Combo titles. Um, on their preferred console of choice, right? I think that's always a positive. And if anything, you know, these games coming to consoles and primarily in terms of what I would be interested in, like a uh, Nintendo Switch, it's made me look at that console in a new way where I was like, oh, how sick would it be to be able to go back and play? Because admittedly, I have not played the entirety of the Puppet Combo or Torture Store back catalog. It's something that I've been trying to do over the last year, but 
you know, getting to experience those on a handheld console for the very first time, you know, on the sofa or in bed or whatever, or traveling, like that's sort of what every horror fan probably dreamt about oh, yeah. back in the day when they were sort of getting into gaming or getting into horror. The idea of having these, you know, terrifying experiences in the palm of your hand is, you know, was a fantasy basically when we were kids. And mm-hmm. now it's become this reality where uh, it's, you know, not, it's very viable. So yeah, if anything, you just love to see whether it's more of these types of experiences on PC or just coming to console. Um, that's again, kind of the soapbox that we're always standing on where it's like more accessibility to all games of all caliber yeah. on people's preferred platforms. So, you know, hopefully we'll, that will be a trend that continues onward in terms of puppet combo as well as um, torture star. But I think next you are going <laughs> to shift gears a little bit uh, and tell me all about the Greyhill incident, a game that I heard about on social media for a long while, and then I heard almost nothing about as soon as it was released, other than uh, a few messages you sent me uh, on Twitter. But why don't you detail the Greyhill incident for oh, us? Oh, man. So they we're all about positivity on this show and, and finding the best in things. And this isn't going to be one of those bits, I'm afraid. Um, you know, we were due, yeah, to be fair. And, you know, we, we, you were saying about you know, how you didn't hear a thing about this after when it came to release. It's quite telling when it came out on consoles that the release date at the very last minute was moved up several days. You know, so it just disappeared you know, into the future, you know, um, making sure no one could review it in time on that con- on the consoles. Um, so Greyhill Incident by Puck Games is an alien abduction video game. Now, what is telling about that is on Horror Bites, only recently we um, covered a different incident, um, and that uh, was so good that I was playing it at the same time as this, and it just really struck me. You know, we we were talking about you know you'll hear it later this week with the episode of uh, we did on horror bites about you know, what indie horror can do in its short form and how amazing it is and all that. And then I see something like this, and I just think this stuff gives a bad name to every yeah, you know, even to what we were just talking about, puppet combo, you know, like and getting ignored, even though it being quite popular, you know, on a certain level, to have a game that is actually quite inventive and fresh gets ignored because it's not part of the zeitgeist. And then this, you know, made famous through you know viral. TikTok shit, you know, and like that short clips here and there, but, you know, giving you a vibe and atmosphere, you know, which meant every major horror site that was doing game coverage was covering it absolutely because why wouldn't you? And, you know, it became a tentpole. And in fairness, you know, I'll say this is my caveat straight out of the bat is I don't think that's the developer's fault necessarily, you know, that they were made this, you know, you know, savior of like sci-fi horror, you know, in terms of like how social media does things now. I mean, TikTok is fucking awful for that, you know, for just promoting the absolute dog shit stuff and making it look just because it's content, not because they actually care about the game. You know, mini rant here is this is not every person on any sort of TikTok or YouTube or whatever, but you will get people that just for content sake will just pick up every fucking game that looks like it might be worth a damn in like 20 second trailers or clips 
and just like hype it to the nines. Go, oh, yeah, this is going to be the next best thing in this because they don't have to back it up. You know, they don't have to review it. They don't have to discuss it at any length. They could just shove it out there and say, this is going to be great like that. And people will fucking believe them. And that, that's that, it's just not right. You know, I don't like that. <laughs> so, to be fair, in my friend group, I'm like, you know, the quote unquote, the gamer, right? Outside of whatever my buddies play. It's like they play Call of Duty, they play Mad, which is perfectly fine. But the amount of times that I hear about games from them, I'm like, okay, they automatically saw that on mm. TikTok. And I have to hear about how something is the greatest game that is yet to be released, right? And half the time it's stuff that either ends up like Grey Hill Incident where it's like, okay, there's this clip or series of small short bursts of a clip from an experience that goes viral because it's like, oh, it looks like it captures the essence of mm. something. But what it sounds like is that from your time with it, and you know, I'm sure if I go around and read some reviews, I'm pretty sure this got like a three out of 10 on IGN mm, or something did, along yeah. those lines. But I'm sure if I go around and read more of these experiences, it's like, even if it's able to capture maybe a brief slice of what this type of game sets out to do, which, you know, to be fair, those clips are like 30 seconds, 90 seconds long or whatever. Sure, it looks great in that, but how does that equate to a full-fledged experience that is more than 90 seconds at a time, right? So that seems to be, again, you know, you can't necessarily blame the game perhaps for the amount of noise it was making on no, social media. No. It might be more of a commentary on, you know, how people consume media through social media. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure it sounds like uh, there's a few more issues with, uh, you know, the gameplay wise, if you will. Why don't you detail that yeah. for me uh, and for the listeners? Because I'm not quite sure what gameplay looks like outside of those now, 90 second little yeah, bits. Is that not the problem? Um yeah, you know, and again, I guess go back to this. The devs getting a payday by accepting, you know, that they've got the hype now, might as well sell it for what it is. No problem with that. I absolutely doesn't mean I can't criticize the game. But yeah, you know, it's like, you know, if you have a certain level of ability, maybe you learn from it, make a better game the next time around. Or, and you know, you probably will with the profits you made from this run. But yeah, at the same time, at the very least, you get your payday now. You you bug out and you're done, you know, like that. And maybe people aren't so stupid next time. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> people still out there believing that that abandoned game is a Hideo Kojima game. Yeah, so yeah, it's like that, right? So as a game, I want to sort of put you in a spot here and say that the beginning of this game is the biggest red flag you can get for a video game as to its quality not in a oh it's so bad it's good sort of thing it's basically like a series of like cutaways to like certain you know zooming out of a certain scene on this farmyard thing and uh in this town of gray hill and there's like a walkie-talkie conversation going on between several of the residents and it's staggeringly bad you know i mean you, I think, what did I liken it to uh, in my two out of 10 review on PlayStation Universe? Um, the first impressions count for a lot, yeah. And the dialogue and line delivery in this opening exchange, yeah, I said was akin to a conference speaker walking out to a packed crowd and having his trousers fall down, tripping head over heels into the front row 
And in the front row, the president is there, you know, or something, you know? So yeah, <laughs> imagine sitting on the president's lap with your trousers around your ankles. Don't maybe, but you know. <laughs> yeah. The line reads are basically just like performed like members of the public were just kidnapped, shoved into a dark cupboard and asked to read some lines written in crayon, you know. And yeah, you know, I don't mind when lines are read in a really rickety amateur fashion because they could really make it a sort of they could give it the right bad quality of you know what i mean there's a joyousness you know we've discussed on safe room before my love of devil may cry and how fucking terrible that dialogue is but i love it because it's so <laughs> knowingly 80s cheesy you know it's also backed up by something which yes. is phenomenal gameplay yeah. which you know, bad dialogue is one of those things that as somebody that spent a great deal of their youth playing um, what I would, I suppose, classify as like Eastern Euro jank type of game, something like Stalker Shadow Chernobyl. Yeah. That game is notorious for having very, you know, janky dialogue and whatnot. And sometimes, you know, janky mechanics. But at the end of the day, like those experiences, whether it's Devil May Cry or something like Stalker, are backed up by gameplay or some other facet that definitely, you know, over, I suppose it allows the player to overlook dialogue that you're like, well, this is less than what I would expect from a full fledged game. That's 50 or $60, but it's backed up by gameplay. So at the end of the day, it doesn't end up hindering your entire experience where with something like this, it sounds like the fact that they're starting with this foot that is not necessarily their best and then it sounds like, from a gameplay perspective, it doesn't necessarily pick up any of that slack. Yeah, well, like, we again, we were talking about a, an indie game that's a couple of hours long just before this. And, you know, we cover indie games that are 15 minutes to 45 minutes long every week on Horror Bites. And most of the time, they are anywhere between free and, what, 15 quid. You know, the base version of this game is, like, 20 quid. The collector's edition is 25, I know, collector's edition, which, yeah, it's a collector's item in some way. Um, It features, uh, (laughs) it features a wallpaper, yeah, that is just (laughs) like, um, like the main title screen thing, not downloadable. It's just in the game. It's like and like images from in the game, like that. And it's just extra stuff, just mental. I don't get why you're charging extra fiver to get a bunch of stuff that should be in the game. You know, actually, like collectibles. One of the parts of the, uh, I'm looking at the collector's edition right now. One of the options is for $4, you can get the found footage mode which is basically a filter for the game. And it's like, what did we just finish talking about? A bunch of uh, puppet combo who is notorious for including multiple filters in the experience that's provided. Mm. It's not this like bonus feature. It is quite literally features that are packaged into this experience that ultimately, um, you know, I haven't played Grey Hill Incident, but uh, I'm going <laughs> to go out on a limb and say that the found footage mode of not experiencing that is not what um, makes the base vanilla experience well, uh, so underwhelming. I, I mean, the most genuine thing about that would be the uh, delivery from people who don't don't belong on film. You know, that's as simple as that. Um, even then, 
it just it doesn't sound like anything any normal person would say so still there's that problem um i've talked all the time about all that and not actually got into what the game is so there are stealth sections in this game in the vegas sense um way you know the consequences of which are vague and varied don't tend to work out how they should um there's a chargeable torch you know again with amnesia of the bunker we've recently talked about how what an ingenious move it was to suddenly give you a light supply that is unlimited but you know faulty in that way here it's a fucking pain in the ass it's a shit it's a <laughs> shit torch at the best of times it's useless in pretty much every situation because it's light enough to see everything anyway and it's it's there you know like i don't get why it's there like that and there's combat eventually and there's you know i think that is basically revolves around a baseball bat and a revolver and it's just unpleasant just horrible horrible game play experience it just doesn't feel like anything like you don't feel like you're fighting back you just feel like you're doing target practice you know against the cardboard cutouts um i will sort of scale this back and give my one minor piece of praise to this game which is that there are moments during the opening when nobody's talking that you have <laughs> good atmosphere and like you know, the presentation is decent enough that you get the good sort of build up to the aliens turning up where you know, okay, they're going around the house and like signs of their arrival is there. But it's just ruined every time anyone opens their mouth or or the next bit of gameplay doesn't match what they're doing. And that's what frustrates me because it's as a sort of alien abduction story. Yeah, and I go, we we're talking about uh, incident grey lake, grey lake um recently and um that was so good because it really tapped into a very particular 90s idea of um alien abduction and this has like the broad outlines of it you know it, it's a sketch of an idea you know like every fucking sci-fi abduction horror trope you could think of is in here and done badly you know and, and i hate that because it feels offensive and like i said before because it has such a position of power given to it by social media it just it makes everything else look bad and i just we can sit here and talk about indie horror games and we'll have the audience will listen to that because they want that but for the general horror audience and you know it's no different in any form of horror media media at all that if you give them a really bad example of it done in a certain way, you're going to put them off when it's been made prominent. And this is a game that will yeah. do that. And I don't like that because, again, not the game's fault, but because of that social media presence and that lazy sort of curation, if you will, we end up with stuff like this where games like you know, Stay Out of the House get ignored Games like Amnesia of the Bunker get ignored despite, you know, great word of mouth because you get shit like this. You know, and shit is the nice way of putting it. I know I don't like to rag on a game. I really don't. But sure. Yeah. But this is just 
20 quid on a PlayStation store right now. Yeah. And 25 US. Yeah. yeah. And 25 quid for the collector's edition. And just everything about it just feels like they've just, I mean, I'm not even being, you know, silly about this here. I, I'm literally saying the credits include all the assets, store-bought assets they use to make the game. Not a problem to use store-bought assets to make a game. Absolutely not. Everything is. Everything is like there are repeat it's there are repeated things in this game that get used over and over again that are just someone else's work. And I get that you can put stuff together, you know, and make your own thing. And that is, is a bit different to say, like using AI to just sort of, oh, I dreamed a dream and this is my dream, other people's. Here it's a case of like Okay, yeah, I'll use other people's sort of assets and make something inventive with that because that's been done so many times. This isn't that. This is just we couldn't think of what we're doing. We had a vague idea of what we wanted to do, and this is it. And none of it, none of it where they try to reach for the stars, so to speak, works. Yeah, nothing where they want to make the game they want to make. It feels like it's there. It, it very much feels like we had an idea for a game that might work, that might look cool. We used other people's assets. Again, like I said, no problem. But we used it in a way that just feels lazy, um, unintelligent, and just downright insulting to the vast majority of the indie space. You know? And... I think that should be it, really, for what I say about it, because I, I've written my say, <laughs> and I, I'm saying my say here. It, it is just, I, I've played worse games, I must say, but I think just where this stands in terms of the horror game landscape and how much coverage it got, as I said, not the fault of the, the developers at all, still just rankles me in a way that I can't entirely shake. I mean, I haven't even played it, and this will be, I suppose, the last thing we say on it. But, you know, I haven't played it myself, but it does annoy me to see the amount of coverage that something like this game got when we spend a good deal of our time for this podcast highlighting games that don't get the coverage they deserve, and they end up being some of the best experiences that we have all year, um, and sometimes at a fraction of the cost, right? And I think that, furthermore, it's it irks me that this game got the amount of coverage it did on social media, just basically based off of it, a, you know, it being a pretty decent looking game, I think for the size of the experience. Yeah, in isolation. Uh, It's certainly not a, yeah, it's not a bad looking game. And I think that it's maybe more of a commentary on just people's expectations for games. Right. I think that if a game like stay out of the house doesn't necessarily go viral the way that something like this does, because for starters, the general audience or general, you know, gamer audience is not necessarily interested or attuned to like what a PSX experience is. It's what would the top comments be? This looks like yeah. shit, right? From the masses, I'm saying, not from oh, genre yeah, fans right. like us or, uh, you know, it's the type of thing where you have to have a certain, I suppose, either predisposition or understand that that graphical style is being utilized intentionally it's not a limitations thing it's that it's being utilized because that's a certain time period that's being evoked it's a certain ambiance that's being evoked but something like 
Greyhill incident goes viral because, oh, this looks like it's, you know, the next cutting edge sort of graphical type of game. Mm. And it's tapping into like signs and fire in the sky. But I think that more importantly, it just it continues to be an example of like people such as us. And I'm sure people that listen that, you know, maybe look into games a little bit more than the masses do. Um, you know, you just have to continue to be discerning in terms of like if you're if you've got 30 bucks a month to spend on games, you have to do the research. You have to wait until I think that's partially why, um, you know, stuff like pre-ordering, not that you could have pre-ordered this, but just in general, yeah. right? You have to be understanding of what something is before you kind of blindly dive into it. And fortunately, for it sounds like for people that bought this, like you could return it on Steam, right? Steam refunds is a yeah. thing and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's a shame because, you know, if you tell me that, there's a first person game horror game that is evoking things like fire in the sky and signs. I mean, shit, that yeah. sounds exactly like it's right I, up my I mean, uh, alley. I, I really wanted to think this was any, even halfway decent. I think the biggest damage it got was playing incident at Grove Lake so close to it and just thinking, no, this, this gets it. This gets the whole X Files fire in the sky thing so much better in fifteen to twenty minutes than this does in two hours. I mean, Christ, even the first ten minutes of this game are a terrible example. Uh, it just it's so exposition heavy, it's so clunky and wrong, and it's just yeah. I, I mean, I, I said I wouldn't go on about it anymore. I'm still fucking going on about it. But yeah, it's like <laughs> you know what? I you know what we should do. Scratch this from the record. Let's talk about a game that's actually good. Yeah. And uh, go with the next game from this month. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to keep that sci-fi uh, sort of uh, focus going, but, uh, you know, it'll be a little more of a positive chat. That being <laughs> Night Dive Studios System Shock, which, to be honest, kind of amazed that I'm even able to play and the masses are able to play. Yeah. Just thinking about how long this game was sort of in, if you will, development hell. Um, but Night Dive Studios, who's quite, made quite a name for themselves in terms of digging up games that were either considered abandoned due to like the legal stipulations around ownership in these things, but they've really made a name for themselves of kind of digging up these games that seemingly were forgotten and making them not only accessible to the masses, but giving them a fair amount of support in terms of whether it's a graphical updating or just in terms of being able to play them at like proper resolutions on modern consoles. Like that's the drum that you and I are constantly beating, which is just like accessibility. Mm. And honestly, I can't think of a better example of a studio that's really walking that sort of talk of accessibility of like digging up these projects and just making them playable. Um, so, you know, Night Dive Studios has brought the 1994 immersive sci-fi sim into the 21st century, that being System Shock. Um, and they've not only rebuilt the game from the ground up, but they've made some of the mechanics of the game a little more accessible, I think, to yeah. the modern palette. Um, so in this game, the player wakes up on Citadel Station and immediately has to face the queen bee of killer AIs, that being Shodan, which is the AI system that has not only killed a majority of the crew on this space station, but has turned the survivors into both cyborgs and hellish mutants. Um for people that are not familiar with System Shock, as I was not before this, it's one of those, you know, oversights on my back catalog that I've been meaning to get to. But when it was came time to go back and actually play the original, 
I'll be honest, it was a little too dated for me to really dive into. But for people that are not familiar with System Shock, this is basically the basis for the spiritual successor that would become Bioshock, essentially, where you have, you know, going through this environment where there's been this catastrophic event and the player has to deal with the ramifications of that, whether it be monsters, and then they can deal with those monsters with a variety of abilities and also, you know, firearms, melee And the main difference, though, between System Shock and Bioshock, which is something, unfortunately, that Bioshock has kind of lost, is the immersive sim quality and how you traverse an environment. And right off the bat, that's something that I was incredibly impressed with, with System Shock, despite this being a game from 1994. Really, the player is given the basic parameters of the world, of their abilities, and then they can kind of just run free with how they want to approach whether it be combat or traversing an environment. Um, And, you know, this was a game that I described as being in like development hell forever. It was a game that was, I believe, announced the plans for remaking in 2015. I played the Unity demo that this was originally made in in 2016, I think, like a long while back. And in that time, you know, they had a million dollar Kickstarter And then they not only had so much interest and then funding for it that they ditched Unity and they decided to remake it in Unreal. And I think that that's monumental, not only in sort of the obvious graphical benefits of making a game in Unreal, but also the sort of sidestepping of the limitations of something like Unity, which I think makes this game ultimately much more accessible to modern palettes, I suppose. People that are not as in love with the originals or they never experienced the originals, it makes it far more approachable. Um, And I think that ultimately what I'm most impressed with with System Shock in the remake, and it's kind of a shame that, as I said early on, this is one that I think is getting overlooked the most in terms of a year that's packed full with remakes, is that it's not necessarily like a household name, like a Dead Space, like a Resident Evil, like a Silent Hill. And, you know, I think that this is the one that is most indicative of being sort of like a passion project or love letter, I suppose, to a franchise that really was at the forefront of something when it was initially released. But for whatever reason, it just did not flourish the same way as some of these other series did. I think a big part of that was that people couldn't play System Shock 2 for a long while because of the fact that it was the victim of being tied up in some type of litigation of like when looking glass studios went out of business, they got bought by like some random insurance company that was like, Oh, we could probably flip a profit or something like that. But they basically wouldn't allow anybody to do what night dive studios ended up doing with the original system shock system shock Two, which then sort of garnered this idea of like, Oh yeah, it's more viable now to remake system shock. And, you know, I really have to say, in terms of it not only being more approachable, the core fundamentals of gameplay and the ideology behind System Shock, they haven't, it feels like they haven't aged at all, basically. Like, it is this world that is so organic to allowing the player to take the choices that they want to and to attack different sections of the base at different times. There really aren't any restrictions outside of you have to find a key card to access certain parts of an environment. But every environment has two to three sort of access points, if you will. And it's really just up to the player 
to take the time to explore or, you know, if they want to make a beeline for a certain area, they can. But, you know, it is a game that continually rewards player experimentation and choice. And, you know, as I uh, was gushing about Stay Out of the House, this is another game that I've been playing a lot recently. And it is a shame when you go back and play a game like this, or I suppose when you play a game like this for the first time, that's hearkening back to a more dated sort of methodology with game design that we don't get more games mm-hmm. like this. We don't get games that have the amount of freedom and, you know, player freedom, player agency. These are sort of like buzzwords that we get with a oh, lot yeah. of games and their marketing. But how often is it the case where you get a game that says those things and then it's like, okay, you can either take the stealth route or you can just like unload with guns and be loud. That's a majority of when people talk about immersive Sims in terms of new games. And I think that with things like stay out of the house, amnesia, the bunker, the system shock remake. We're incredibly fortunate to have these games that really do reward experimentation in a way that we haven't in a good long while. Yeah. And yeah, I think System Shock and Deus Ex were like so massively ahead of you know, there's a reason they're so well revered, you know, because what they do were was the height of what PC could do. Yeah, you know, like these days, yeah, absolutely. everyone talks about PC, about graphics, and you know what can it push, what can do that. What made PC so exciting back in the day was you could get games that just offered you possibilities that just weren't there in the console space, you know. Um, and you know, ironically, we kind of get a bit of that now, you know, where you, you just get these experiences that are big and popular, and they're very simple. You know, in their execution, you know, I mean, that's fine. It works very well for many developers. I think um, Sony are experts in that, you know, in making the simplest ideas into these big, jazzy, set-piece-laden things that wow the people they need to wow, you know. And while that's a sort of sad reflection on where media is now, in general, and that's the exact reason why this is a game that got overlooked, why Stay Out the House, I'm Easy with the Bunker, and it, to be honest, every immersive sim. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting how Red Bull was the game by Arcane that got the most attention because it was bad at what it did, yet most of the people kicking the shit out of it didn't give a shit about any of the games before that and the majesty of what they did, you know, and and they were still simplified accounts of the immersive sim and what they could do. And you get games like this, you know, and, you know, everything I've seen about reviews and stuff, because I didn't get to play the remake yet. Um, Say this is basically, it's the same game down to, down to a T. It just looks nicer. And that's really appealing for me, you know, someone who grew up with that. You know, but I can see why that might not appeal to a modern audience you know, in general. And it, it's just the problem of immersive sims in the modern era. You, you get people who just don't get that. Same people who will look at games and, you know, and complain about the direction they've taken and the way they are. And, probably the same people that complain about like um, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, you know, which is a game that is 
mainstreaming the immersive sim approach right now and just it's giving it life beyond that niche audience and that's great and i think it's really great for all the games that have now come in that sort of slipstream since then for system shock in the remake for amnesia and that it's brilliant because we get that and if you get a big game trying that you get the general audience a bit more used to the idea of that and that's what we need you know like that i mean in any media that's what you need you need a market leader something that the general public will swallow that introduces something a bit different it doesn't always work in the long term you know in terms of like uh individual sort of creators yeah i mean the wachowskis are a great example of that i think because everything they did with the matrix is still there and everything they made after but the general public doesn't like the the other level of that you know and that ends up being you know, a sore point for them as a result here this is just I don't know. I think, like you say, Passion Project is a really good way of putting this because they haven't gone and scrubbed everything out of what came before. They 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 just looked at the project and said, the game was revered for a reason. It was amazing for a reason. It was that freedom. It was that expression. Yes, you can look at it and go, oh, well, you know, it's very backwards, you know, by modern standards, but think you lose that you lose what the game was uh, i think as much as i love arcane i think that is proof positive of that because it's simplified it, it has to balance things between simplifying it for modern audience and pleasing the people that came before and you know you get that complaint then from people who wanted it to be like the old school and people who want to be, you know, Hitman's another great example of that, you know, where it is, in a way, simplified what the idea of that is, but it's still really freeform and going in great directions with it. But people will look at it and go, well, yeah, but it's not, not freeform in the same way I used to know it. Like that. This is proof that those people are talking out of their ass in a way because... Yeah, you can give them a game like this where it is exactly what they asked for. And they're looking and going, yeah, well, I don't really like this. You know, I don't really want like that. And you know, that's not say everyone's like that, because I've seen plenty of people, especially in the developer space, you know, people who were inspired by this game, you know, being really excited by the fact that this is just untouched on a gameplay sort of level, but just looks better. And I think the thing I've noticed from all the footage I've seen with this game is that it keeps it so vibrant, you know, um, in a way that the original game was, but upscales it in a way that it just feels, you know, again, this is a criticism of modern sort of visual storytelling. Maybe you don't have a lot of color and there's a lot of um, realism and effect for drabness and dystopian sort of feel. This just feels like funky 70s sci-fi. And yeah, that was always the absolutely. greatest thing about System Shock. And here it's like, it's actualized in a way that feels modern. And I'm just so interested in that idea. You know, I, I love that you had these really 
day glow tron-esque sort of colors to to environments and it's still so dangerous you know as an environment it's it's remarkable i i think you've got to look at this as the benchmark for actually just remaking a game not reimagining not like changing different bits and bobs whatever actually just remaking a game as it was with extras now yeah i mean a great example of that coming forward will probably be what konami is doing with metal Gear solid 3 you know where they are just saying it's the same game same voice actors just looks nicer blah 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 interesting to see if that works out but um it it can't always work i i'd imagine that there are going to be examples that don't work but this is perfect i think the only sort of series where i saw the reimagining and the making it accessible for a new generation worked for me in this immersive sim sort of genre was probably deus ex with, with the you know the, those later games where idos um they were just magnificent in what they did they were just the right amount of for newbies and for old school guys you know and and um hopefully uh, work on this is enough to maybe give system shock another shot but it won't be night day night dive let's be honest because yeah we were you were talking earlier about you know how you know, studios getting swallowed up by people that don't know any better. And the, the worrying thing about Night Dive is they got swallowed up recently by Atari. And it's not that Atari. It's the Atari that made um, Alone in the Dark Illumination. Yeah, the <laughs> right. game, yeah. Alone in the Dark, yeah. the game that's a co-op game where you're in the light constantly. And it's like, it, that's not the best signs for that. I'm hoping, you know, if you're going to talk um, soccer football terms here, it's like that the Crunkies um, at Arsenal sort of turning around realizing, shit, people have kind of found us out for being a bit money hungry. We'll just we'll give them the club what they want, and and we'll make everyone feel good about the club now, and uh, you know we'll try and paint a different view of what we are. That's what I'm hoping now for Night Dive is that, that, that with Atari behind them, they are um, going to give them nothing personally gives me confidence. That's going to be the case, but still. Um, I'm hoping that they're able to ward off, you know, the overlord, uh, I suppose, forceful nature that, you know, choosing their next project for them before they can at least squeeze out System Shock 2. Because that is the obviously the inevitable uh, sort of bridge. Because as far as I am aware, uh, System Shock Two is the game that's revered even more so than the oh, original. Yeah. And to see a, a sequel like that get the same treatment that this did um, is something that you know I can only hope. And I think that uh, the indication of the, res- the critical reception for something like the System Shock remake um, is an indication that that's on the hopefully the horizon. But it is this uncomfortable kind of realization when you play something that's as well made and as passionately made as the System Shock remake is, is that it's only viable really to a certain portion of gamers. And to be fair, I'd say that it's pretty niche uh, at that because it's the thing where it's like 
a lot of games that have been drawing inspiration from System Shock and whatnot for the last, you know, almost 20 years at this point have become fundamentally different things that give people an idea of like this new modern idea of what an immersive sim is. But then, you know, we dial that realization back a little bit with things like Amnesia the Bunker, with the System Shock remake, it Stay Out of the House, that really do show you what immersive sims were like back in the day. You just don't know, though, the bigger certain studios get, if those become viable products, the bigger they mm-hmm. get, because you have to start thinking about a product that appeals to the masses and not so much to people that like us that are uh, willing to, you know, either dive into older styles of games or just at the end of the day, you know, appreciate a lack of handholding. Um, but, you know, whatever direction Night Dive Studio takes or just immersive sims in general, I think in a year that's chock full of these horror remakes, the System Shock remake is one that I'll definitely be bringing up at the end of the year. And I hope that, you know, it gets the uh, fanfare that it deserves just as much as some of other immersive sims or just horror remakes in general. Um, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll chat Killer Frequency, Stasis Bone Totem, and we'll round things out with Homebody. But more on those in a moment. And we are back from our break. And Neil, you are going to play Disc Jockey now in detail. Killer Frequency for us. Yeah, so this feels like a lifetime ago already, just uh, sort of detailing this, uh, such has been the month of uh, horror gaming. Um, probably because I got paid for this way back in early May, I think, Um so yeah, naturally, this is why uh, it ends up feeling like that. Um, the idea here is very simple. You are a DJ who was once famous, um, well, you know, internationally, maybe even nationally in America, and you, for some reason, have been demoted to the middle of bumfuck nowhere and doing some night shift, yeah, and you basically turn up for your first shift in this small town, very beleaguered by it, um, feeling like, oh, what's the point? Like that. And you're introduced to, you know, all the mechanics of, like, running this DJ station. You know, we were just talking about immersive sims. You know, this is not that necessarily, but, you know, it's very in-depth in what it's doing. You know, it's probably more simulated vibe, I suppose, you would go for here, where you are, you know, told how to queue up a track or like put an advert on or whatever like that and you know this station that is called kfam uh, 189.16 the scream um in a small midwest town known as gallows creek and yeah the job starts out very normal um but you are soon sort of contacted by the police who talk about someone going on a killing spree who could be a legendary killer that supposedly had already died. And, uh, yeah, so naturally the, the characters there thinking that you, the leg is being pulled uh, somewhat, but uh, it becomes increasingly clear that there is something very wrong going on. And the rest of this sort of DJ J shift turns into trying to be a DJ and basically operating the uh, police lines in this sleepy little town. And that in itself is just such a novel approach for a horror game. Um, the visual stuff of this is interesting. It's very cell shaded in what it's doing. 
uh, has the sort of neon glow of the 80s, which is where this game is set. And, you know, all in first person, the opening kind of gives you a taster of what's going on out in the world with this killer. Um, but yeah, the, the fun of sort of manning a DJ desk and hosting it, it gave me vibes of um, Pontypool, you know, which, you know, I think is one of the greatest examples of like using a DJ booth uh, on radio in horror form. And, you know, you, you can do all sorts. Of, you can queue up music. You can literally just pull out an LP and put it on and there's all this original music. It's really cool. And you, you can just take crumpled up bits of paper and chuck them into a distant bin that's got a little basketball net on it and stuff like that. And surprisingly compelling as it goes but then you get the the extra steps that come into that you know you're not confined to this area you know you get to explore other rooms and other places within the environment but when you are there and taking call from people who are either being stalked by this killer that was supposedly dead or whatever like that and you can help them get out of that situation and by finding the right tools so maybe you search around where you are and find an instruction manual that tells you how to hotwire a car you know or something like that and you you sort of read out the instructions in the right order and it has that flexibility where you know people live or die depending on what you do or don't find or what you do or don't say and it works really well for this game i'm yeah, you know, I knew a little of it just through people I know who promote stuff for Team Seventeen anyway. But actually playing it, I was like, "Wow!" Yeah, you know, we play plenty, as I said before. You know, fresh stuff from indie developers, big and small. And this concept was like, "Wow!" I can see why this was picked up by Team Seventeen, who you know can do quite well in that space. And make you know that they've made this horror experience, which is relatively short form. You know, probably about four or five hours if you are like trying things out, doing different things, and really exploring the story. But it, it's very tactile, you know. Like the environment is very. You, you go around it. You can find all these secrets and unlockables and extras, and discover more about the world around you and. It, it's yeah, it's like a bottled immersive sim in a way that you have a flexibility to the confines of what you're doing that can be replayed and retried in it their own ways. And yeah, I, I honestly wasn't expecting that yeah, from this game. And when all was said and done with this, I was genuinely just looking back and going, wow, yeah, I. I this has kind of crept up on me in terms of what games do because it's that level that we've been talking about on Horror Bites where you get these small ideas and you think it'd be great if someone just believed in them enough to give them the budget and the time to just sort of take it to the next level. And this is it. This, this is a game that is doing that like to the nth degree. And uh, yeah, I was just looking at it and going, yeah, good for them. They they really got out there and they made this game work on a level they did. 
Yeah, you can see where it is simplified for what they're making. It doesn't matter. The presentation, the idea behind it, all you need is, you know, when we talked about the Greyhill incident and, and like, you know, wasting an opportunity like it does, this is the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like get, getting that attention, getting that funding enough for someone as big as Team 17 to come in and say, yeah, we'll publish your game and then make it look and play as good as this. I, I'm, in, I'm in awe, to be honest, you know, that, that it works that well. Yeah, you know, not without its flaws, obviously. Uh, I think it can be a little too ambiguous with certain aspects, and but even then, you could kind of notch that up to yeah, you know, giving you the creative freedom to play it again and again and again. Um, but I think it loses a little bit of that freshness when you do that. But either way, it's just one of the biggest surprises for me this year. In, in terms of what it's doing on this level. You know, I, I played so many great games this year already. And I have a real soft spot for this one. Just just for what it's doing, the whole DJ thing and the way it handles that structure that it goes for where it escalates the story throughout the night and the way you have this choice-based system where it's part text adventure, part, you know, it, part walking sim, if you will. And makes it all gel together in a way that is just fascinating from start to finish. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at the Steam page right now. And um, from what you've said, it sounds like this is the type of game that I draw some parallels to something that we covered for Horror Bites last year, I believe, which was Drive Time mm. Radio, which has that disc jockey interactivity portion where you can choose how you respond. But this sounds like it has much more player agency but also, you know, an emphasis on player choice in terms of, you know, you quite literally have to get up from your DJ booth station and interact with other parts of the environment, which, you know, the DJ portion is a nice hook for why this game is, you know, unique and whatnot in its approach to the story that it's telling. Yeah. But to hear that, you know, you're not confined to a specific space for four to five hours and you can explore the rest of the studio, which then has different you know, manuals or different clues to help you actually inform this narrative and, you know, express to people that are calling in, you know, oh, you need to solve this problem. I have the answer. You need to go this direction or you need directions to this location. I can lead you there. Like the fact that it's more than just the confines of the DJ booth itself, it makes it that much more of an appealing concept to me because it's building on that core concept of you're this DJ that has to contend with a killer in the town, but there's more player agency. And it's kind of the thing that we've talked about previously, which is that sort of walking sim quality of some games. It's like the, the walking sims that I think have been, have left the best impression or the most lasting impression on us have been the ones that give the player more to actually physically do than just walk around and explore a space or to, you know, un unravel more parts of a mystery or something. It's actually giving them something to do and to utilize the environment that you're in um, sounds like a way to kind of prolong that type of experience. Um, and ultimately, I think that I think the longer we do horror bites and we play these little games that we're like, oh, we want to actually, you know, expand on this or we want to see that this project grow and grow. 
Uh, something like Killer Frequency sounds like, who's to say, it didn't begin life as a, you know, a horror bite, if you will, but internally, and then flourished into something that added these extra sort of concepts or these extra features um, based off of that, what sounds like a very strong sort of core conceit of this yeah. game. Um, so if anything, you know, this is definitely one that I'm, uh, I'm bummed that I didn't get to, but if anything, you've totally sold me on it. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. The beauty of this show is uh, we will probably come across this again later in the year. So there'll be another conversation to be had there. For sure. But we're going to leave the comfortable confines of a DJ booth. And we're now going to go several leagues underneath the sea with Stasis Bone Totem, which is the latest entry in Brotherhood Games Stasis Anthology series of point and click horror adventure games. Um, This time around, the player is going to be following Mac and Charlie, a husband and wife salvaging duo joined by Moses, their super bear, uh, who stumble upon an abandoned oil rig that houses dark secrets within an underwater facility deep within the Pacific Ocean. So part of the reason why this game's jumped out to me uh, initially was, you know, not that it's necessarily coming off the heels of a film like Underwater, but based on the Steam page and whatnot, it looked like a horror adventure game set within a setting not terribly unlike uh, underwater, that film with Kristen Stewart that came out a few years mm-hmm. ago. But, you know, I've always had a soft spot from my old sort of PC gaming days of my youth with uh, isometric role-playing games or adventure titles, primarily point-and-click games. And, you know, that is a style of genre that I've seldomly really dove into in terms of like more modern, uh, I suppose, renditions operating within that space. Primarily just because when I have actually tried those games, they have not always been reflective of a lot of growth from when this genre was very prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s. And with something like Stasis Bone Totem, that fantastic aquatic horror setting aside, this game jumped out to me because it seemed like it was pushing this genre forwards in a way that had more modern sensibilities while still staying true to the Mm -hmm. roots. And so... I don't necessarily want to dive too much into the sort of mystery of everything and what is actually underneath the sea, because it really is this fantastic journey that is paced so immaculately well, almost as if it was a film in terms of the buildup to what is going on, uncovering that mystery, and then diving really into the horror of the world of Stasis Bone Totem. And to be frank, I haven't played any other Stasis games, but I believe that in terms of this being an anthology, it's more about the aquatic horror world that's blending, you know, flesh and metal kind of aesthetic rather than a continuation. But for all I know, it could be a continuation in some regards. But the fact that this is now the second or third game that's within that anthology series, I don't feel like I'm falling behind or I'm missing some aspect of the story. It feels very self-contained. I would assume that it's more along the lines of like an anthology that all of the games within it are abiding by a design aspect or a world lore aspect rather than specific plot fundamentals. So anybody that hears that there's games that have come previously before this, don't let that hinder you in just diving right into Stasis Bone Totem. Um, But I'll say from the isometric role-playing point of view, what really pushes this game forwards, I think, for the genre is that you control three characters simultaneously that are frequently being split up in this exploration. Certain characters such as Moses the bear, who's this kind of cybernetic bear that they've had with them, 
um, is able to access obviously certain parts of this station that they can't because of his size. And the fact that, you know, it's a cybernetic bear. It can go places that two humans cannot, given the nature of the uh, hostility of the facility. But what I find to be more impressive than just having a party, which is not that uncommon in role-playing games, is that despite the fact that they are separated throughout this facility, the player's ability to transfer loot and items between them is seamless. So they have this kind of tech, basically, that lets you transport items no matter where somebody is. And that's important not only because they're separated, but also because each character has a unique attribute to them. So, for instance, um, Mac is able to rip and bend items apart because he has this strength and like a cybernetic limb. And then you have Charlie, who is sort of the tech guru that is able to repair items or to craft items together. And then, of course, as I said, with Moses, he's able to act as he's a cyborg. He can access computers in a way that the other two can't. So each part of this member of this party has specific attributes that then can be incorporated with items in distinctly different ways. And it's all seamless, which I'm, you know, is a big deal because typically in isometric role-playing games, it's all about proximity between party yeah. members. And Stasis Bone Totem fundamentally does away with that in a way that not only makes sense for the world, but it also allows the progression through the world to be a lot more fluid, I think, instead of like, okay, because there is backtracking, of course. It's not the typical type of backtracking where it's like, all right, now I have to go all the way back here to this zone where this character is. It's not like a relay, basically, with items. It's like, I need this battery. I can just send it to that party member. They can do their thing and manipulate it in a way that gets me through this next puzzle, um, which for somebody like myself, that it's like when I look at isometric role-playing games from back in the day, with any genre, I suppose, you have to move past certain fundamentals because otherwise, once you get a certain amount of years or decades, in some cases, removed from the inception point, it's going to begin to feel antiquated if you don't make modern concessions. And Stasis Bone Totem feels like it makes those modern day concessions while not sort of, I suppose, perverting the idea of what is integral to those um, RPG, those isometric RPGs. Um, and I think that that comes through in the puzzles, yeah. which, you know, have a good amount of complexity to them, but it's nothing that the player can't figure out through sort of deciphering these close-ups that you get of a puzzle. Like it's so it goes from being isometric, but then when you interact with a puzzle or point of interest, it gives you this close-up illustrated version of a puzzle that is very interactable. But at the same time, it furthermore allows the player to interact with it in ways that it might take a little bit of just deciphering in general. Um, so for instance, early on, you have to like, reinstall a gas canister that one pl uh, one character has to basically plug it into a machine, use their attribute to make it so they can actually get this to be sealed correctly, filled with the right gas, and then you ship it over to another player mm -hmm. in another part of the base that can then install it. But if you don't mess around with the different components on this machine through exploring it, you can have some drastic uh, ramifications, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but I find that the amount of interactability with puzzles and sort of just getting the lay of the land of environments, but also the intricacies of these different machines and things that you'll come in contact with 
has a more modern sensibility, I suppose, to player curiosity, which is a little vague, but I think that just more so it's the more that the player sort of interacts with things, the more their understanding comes through. And it's not always this seemingly indecipherable logic puzzle, if you will. Yeah, which actually brings me quite nicely on to my question about this game. I haven't played it personally, so... But, you know, in looking into it, I am I saw that the writing was done by the author J. Barton Mitchell, who'd done young adult sort of novel series such as Pocket Earth uh, and The Razor. Um, so yeah, with that in mind, you know, how sharp is the writing here, given that it is from someone who is of a book writing background? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you asked that because it is probably the most impressive example of writing that I've played in a game this year for a number of reasons. For starters, you know, it would be one thing to have party members that you are controlling simultaneously that go through the world. And some areas you will be re-exploring with other party members that previously could not explore it themselves because it was just inhospitable to them, whether it's that they're the cybernetic bear or they're the human. Mm. And that evolves with the different types of environments that you're traversing. And with this game, there's a button that you press and it basically illuminates the environment and it tells you what you can interact with in the environment and what has sort of like lore or flavor text prescribed to it. So for instance, like there's a good bit of the environment that is like interacting with the machine that has a puzzle tied to it. But at the same time, there'll be panels on the wall that you could hover your mouse over and it gives you a description of it. And that description initially is from a human point of view primarily. And, you know, not only is it very descriptive, not only is it making the mundane intriguing or reflective of this very singular world, but when you change the different characters, when they interact with those pieces of lore, it's from their own perspective as if you're reading their mind in terms of like, the cadence that it's being described at or why a specific part of the environment is unique to that character. So for instance, the bear's perspective being a cyborg is going to be very different in how he views certain parts of the environment in the world compared to his human counterparts. And the, not only amount of detail in the writing, but the attention to the personality of each of the characters is something that I'm, you know, I have admittedly not finished it. I'm six, seven hours into it, and it's about a 10-hour experience. But I am incredibly taken with the amount of variety in the writing to the degree that it's probably going to take me longer than the supposedly 10 hours it takes because I'm reading everything that I come in Mm -hmm. contact with. And that also carries over to the various PDAs that you find from people that were on the facility before the player arrives that are very indicative of a unique personality rather than, okay, there's either a monster here or somebody killed somebody here. It's like, it's very much as if I'm looking into kind of their memories in a way that is not only descriptive, but is emblematic of their personality of somebody that I'm never going to meet because more or less I'm going to be digging through their body, finding a clue item or something along those lines um, later down the line. But I'll just say, you know, for the last thing, top to bottom, in terms of people that maybe are somewhat wary of isometric adventure games, RPGs, what have you, the production value here is top notch. Each of these characters is fully voiced with voice work that 
it feels like a, I'll describe it as triple A grade, yeah. if you will, in terms of not only it being fully voice dialogue, not just when the player interacts with like a major key piece of an environment or an item or whatnot, but all of their voice work is fully voiced from the beginning of the game to where I'm at now. Um, and it's just, again, dripping with personality and it's the type of thing that um, it feels like it has a much bigger production value than you would assume from a game that is relatively, at least at this point in terms of us recording, I don't see a great deal of people talking about with the same fervor that I would want. And I don't know the reasoning for that. Maybe it's because we're in this period where it seems like we're being graced with so many different types of horror games at the moment. But this is absolutely a game that uh, I think is making my shortlist for games of the year already. And it's one that I haven't even finished. And, you know, the production value is a huge aspect of that. But more importantly, I think it's the production value, but also the attention to detail in pushing the subgenre forwards or the genre forwards in terms of something that maybe some people view as antiquated. This feels like it's giving the proper amount of respect, but also pushing certain fundamentals of the genre forwards in a way that feels more modernized without, you know, doing away with that foundation of the history of these isometric uh, point and click adventures. Yeah. I mean, that is what you want really, isn't it? You you want to get that past and present in place and, and make a game that works in both ways. And it really does sound like that kind of game to me. You are going to round us out with, Another indie game that I honestly would not know about unless you had uh, written such a glowing review of and chatted with me about. But why don't you tell us all about Homebody? Yeah, so Homebody, you know, as indie as it is, has pretty serious backing here because it is, um, you know, uh, produced by Game Grumps. You know, uh, Dan Avedon and Aaron Hansen, um, long-term uh, internet personalities in their own right. Um, but he's... Uh, made by Jory Griffiths. And the thing to say about this is it takes that sort of 90s idea of survival horror before Risen, Risen Evil was like uh, you know, the, the forefront of what that meant. Um, so it, it kind of takes more of an alone in the dark sort of vibe, which is pretty telling for this year, I think. You know, I think it's a good time for a game to come along and do that. Um, so the thing that immediately came to mind with this is, you know, Happy Death Day, uh, Christopher Landon's film, is a great reference point for what this game is doing in terms of, like, uh, repeating a day, repeating a time, learning from your mistakes and trying to sort of work a way around what's gone wrong. Um... What I found with that film, though, was it is quite straightforward, quite shallow in how it does that. Not a problem. Works quite well for the film. Um, But, yeah, given its roots in comedy more than horror, I I understand why it was, you know, as straightforward as it was. Um, Homebody just kind of gets that itch for me with that. You know, it scratches it in a way that I didn't, expect you know i i really didn't think anything was going to get what happy death day promised but didn't quite deliver in the way it does you know it really does just 
take that hard premise and make it something more concrete you know i think in video games being what they are it was natural that a video game would make this a more concrete believable premises to experience and, and feel so in terms of story you are you know there's a, a group of college friends reuniting at this sort of isolated rental house to view the Poseid meteor shower um yeah, they've known each other for years. They have their own personal history that sort of comes up through the story. Um, but you view all this through the eyes of Emily, who has you know her own mental health problems. You know, uh, you know mental health is a big sort of thing in this game, and you know, she's turning up late because of her own personal problems and worrying about how people are going to be with her and you get a lot of the consequence of how she has been you know, and how her personal feelings have kind of distanced others within the group from her. And one of the most haunting things about this game before you get into any of the actual horror stuff is just the nature of personal relationships and how they develop over time and how they evolve and how they just disappear. You know, I mean, I mean, that's the big thing here is that you have, this person realizing that you know there are friendships still there within their friend group you know but because of everything that's happened in like them being at different schools different places and all that that the distance is already showing and i think that's more horrific when you're old enough to sort of have experienced that you know and really have that be driven home in a way that oh shit yeah you know, I I see this I I have been there uh, yeah which is you know for the audience that Game Grumps navigates normally a lot of those people may not have had that moment yet you know and maybe this game picked on a special impact for them in, in that regard um but yeah that that is but one portion of what the game is because. A few hours into arriving at this house, Emily, you know, then discovers there's a power cut, and then suddenly the discovery of a serial killer on the premises, offing her friends, and you know, through your own personal flexibility, you may die sooner or later by that serial killer's hand, and then you are kind of really given the gist of what the game is actually about which is this house is not quite like a normal house there's some weird shit going on it this particular sort of technology going on that you kind of have to solve and that's your job basically it's like you can't fight back you can't defend yourself you have the inevitability of knowing that every time you die you go back to seven o'clock of that night, two hours before the power cuts out and the killer arrives in the house, knowing that that's your time, that, that that's your space to realize what's happening. And as a result, you took the experiment in a way that, you know, we've been talking about immersive sims and how they let you experiment with your failure and sort of learn your lessons from what you've been doing. 
this is very simplistic compared to that, but it still allows with this sort of tiny new structure that this game goes through that you can just sort of treat the few hours you get with the idea, well, look, I know I'm going to die at the end of this. I know there's no good result coming out of what I will learn from this time for this period of time. But because you know that, you can learn as much as possible from that time and sort of push the story forward and uncover the greater mystery of this house and why this technology that's within this house is making this happen. And, you know, you had the mystery of who the killer is, you know, is it, is it the people, is it someone who is missing from this uh, reunion? Is it something to do with the very eccentric owner of this home? It could be any number of things. And while that's there as a hook, what really sells this game is the interactions between the characters that are there constantly throughout this game, which is this group of friends. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, eye-rollingly meta takes on, like, talking about the games they grew up with and stuff like Most of these games being the sort of thing that would inspire this, you know, stuff like you know, The Seventh Guest or Mist or whatever like that. And but it works for this game, you know, I'm because there's no sort of specified like sort of time given for when these people are sort of living in, you know, like that it's not made the forefront of what they're talking about. It's like they could be from any time, really, if you were talking about what they were doing. And you sort of grow to love what they're doing and love who they are and like learn all the sort of intricacies between them you know and why some people don't get get on with other people and it's quite remarkable in, in that regard but the puzzle solving is classic survival horror you know it's you know stuff that like but the best thing about this sort of roguelike element to it where you can learn from information on one run die come back and go well i know that now like that and you know the fact that the game addresses that in the story as well and says you know you, know, you aren't just dying because the game says you're dead sort of thing you know it is part of the story it's part of the cycle that's being told and you're often rewarded with these moment these cutscenes after you do die in certain situations that either kind of gently push you on to where you should be going or progress the story in some way and you know the pacing in that regard was really well done you know i felt on edge pretty much of this game in in terms of like i know when the killer's coming i know where he comes from i know what will cause him to come i know where i need to be and what i can do and the more you know the more you kind of are fighting against the inevitable you know and when you sort of break that, you know, when you get to that point where you can start really just fighting back in a way while still feeling really vulnerable to this situation, you are just enraptured by what this game does. I'm, it's really simple. Always, I mean, when we talk with the devs of 
uh, tender doves um, and all the sort of uh, reasons they had for what they did. There's a lot of that here. You know, there's a lot of this game that really just captures that same essence for me where it's a dreamlike feel and, you know, and it really does just embrace it. And I'm just totally on board with it. I mean, we talk about surprises. This really was the game that, you know, I'm not reviewing it, not doing anything like that. I bought it simply on the basis of who was backing it, you know, and was massively surprised by, by what I got because, yeah, you get into games and you kind of have to, if you're reviewing them or whatever or doing it for work, you, you get into them and you're like, okay, I'll persevere because I have to. And here it was just, no, I was naturally compelled to sort of keep going along this route to find out what the next bit of this game was, what, what the next progression was of this story, what the next puzzle was and like that. And just discovering all these things it was remarkable for me. I, I could not fathom quite how into this game I had suddenly become. And yeah, it ended up being something quite special to me. I must say, it's like it was something I did not expect to be this great. And you know, I ended up writing about it afterwards because it was just that kind of game. Of all the games that I did not get to uh, for this month's edition of the inventory, this is the one that just based off of what you told me about it previously, I was the most bummed that I didn't because of the fact solely that it taps into a more uh, horror-centric version of uh, Happy Death Day, as you mentioned. And the fact that any game is able to tackle that Groundhog-style approach to reliving a moment or a day and the player is constantly learning something and it doesn't become this sort of infinite loop of a slog, if you mm. will. Um, that is an incredibly exciting premise. And the fact that it sounds like they nailed it as much as they did um, makes me just regret not getting to it because I think from not only the horror side of things, but also the fact that, you know, the puzzles and whatnot sound to be like they are, uh, you know, from the page of survival horror with the world or uh, environment, I suppose, that the player becomes to understand even more so, but also the fact that it's bristling with these personalities that really do tie into the narrative side of things too. It's not just this chase puzzle game. It's also this type of thing that has a narrative that is worth exploring. And it sounds like worth taking risks, whether that be narratively speaking in terms of how you choose to respond to people, but also just maybe, you know, your the player's understanding of, who could actually be behind these things? And the fact that it's not immediately obvious from the outset, which sometimes, you know, when people try to tackle something such as the seventh guest or just in terms of like doing this whodunit approach to a murder mystery is sometimes not as strong as it could be. Um, a game that is delivering on seemingly all fronts um, is something that I definitely am looking forward to checking out now, not only after reading what you had to say about it, but just in hearing about how much it affected you and that it was able to really tap into an aspect of horror that I don't necessarily know we've seen uh, at least one that delivers as well as it sounds like Homebody does. Um, so that's definitely one that I am uh, furthermore regretting not getting into uh, having time for uh, at this yeah, point. That, but That's life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's like we, we both got that this month where you know, there are games you just cannot get to. 
and that's that's it. There, it's a testament to the year, really, that there are so many games, and you just cannot get to them all. Like even yeah. when it's your job, it is really fucking hard <laughs> you know, to to get to everything, yeah. and, and it just makes me think of like the wider sort of gaming audience and think, yeah. They're gonna look out for the big things. They look out the things that they recognize, and it's like it's always gonna be hard for them to to get stuff like this. So, for me, what makes this kind of special is that it has the backing of an audience that wouldn't probably wouldn't even care about this game normally. You know, if it didn't have the confidence and backing of game grunts you know that, that they would you know they played it on their channel that you know they are financially they have financially backed this game and made it a star in its own right and you know i have my own personal bias in thinking that's a great thing but i still think that it's important to have people that famous in that sort of internet social media space given what we've recently said in this episode about mm, how badly that absolutely. can go to have the belief you know not just say oh i like this because content and it'll give me numbers but to have people go no i believe in this project i'll put money at it and make it the success it belongs to be because we see it we've played enough games to understand that that's a whole different side to that you know and that's the roller coaster for me on this episode is that the gray incident is this thing that just you know makes me feel so bad you know about everything going on in the genre that, that could be bad and it, because it ends up being like a great reflection of what this space is and you get this and it's just so wonderful to have something that is you know it's not like the perfect example it's just something that feels heartfelt and backed with genuine emotion you know from the people who people see it you know and go yeah this is what we want to back and yeah it's like i said for one end of the month to the other i haven't played that game to this game was great because i think it made me just see it and go wow yeah it, it just shows you, you can never just be down on this whole thing for too long just because of one game and you just never be like that because you can't control i mean you only have to listen to the music charts and you know the top 40 or whatever and understand that <laughs> you know being popular doesn't mean you're any fucking good you know it just means that a lot of people are willing to swallow whatever has been pushed down their throat and yet uh, occasionally you'll get the right combination of people who are popular pushing something down your throat that actually is palatable and this is it you know in video game terms this is it this is the, the one to go yeah this has the hook this has everything brilliant i i'm into this you know and for me personally as someone who has quite eclectic taste in terms of like music for instance you know and, and video games and movies and whatever that's the way you should approach things you should always say look i understand that there are going to be people that just look at it and just turn their nose up for this because they are very much trained in 
a very particular audience of like I want big blockbuster horror or whatever. But yeah, it's great to see big names just sort of back projects like this and really make it their own. And to do it genuinely and with the passion that it sounds like they executed on with Homebody. I think that, you know, given how readily available the resources are to making games of all sizes now, um, it's the type of thing that we see an influx of projects that perhaps get the benefit with marketing that end up delivering products that have all this fanfare that don't necessarily meet the mark in more ways than one. You also see at times, you know, big names or big studios that are developing or backing projects that you end up experiencing them. And it ends up being a case of like, oh, this just had really great marketing with people attached to it. But then the final product is not Mm -hmm. always the best representation of the material or just the sort of, uh, I suppose, marketing drive behind that. And so to hear something like Homebody, that it sounds like it actually meets that mark and delivers on it in a way that is memorable um, is, you know, that's what you love to hear as a fan of the genre or whatnot. And I think as a whole, you know, we say it every month with the inventory, but we cover such a eclectic mix of games. And, you know, more often than not, we're going to pick things that kind of align with sensibility. You know, it helps that I have a co-host that has sensibilities very similar to mine, but there are cha- there are games out there that, you know, appeal to you more than me and vice versa and whatnot. But for something like Homebody that I was not aware of before, you know, you started telling me about it. It is the type of thing that when I hear somebody like you speaking as passionately about it as you do, it makes me excited for it, even if it's still not necessarily something I would go out of my way to seek Mm. out. Now I will because of sort of your ringing endorsement, but also it just sounds like a project that is coming from a very genuine place with personalities, interests and whatnot, and them bolstering a project that by all accounts, it sounds like something that they wouldn't be unless they had that very genuine sort of interest in themselves and whatnot. But um, yeah, you know, again, another month of the inventory that it has a great deal of variety, but more often than not, um, it's coming from people that are very passionate. And I think that those final products really speak to that passion. Um, But that's going to do it for June's edition of the inventory. But we can say that uh, next week we'll be covering Aliens Dark Descent, a game that initially in the marketing, I was kind of like, okay, this seems like the Aliens IP being slapped onto something akin to XCOM. But I think as you and I have found in our time with the game, there's a little more to it Mm. than just that. Uh, And I very much look forward to diving into that with you uh, next week. But until then, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Yes. Until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. As always, our main episodes for Safe Room drop every Monday, but our bite-sized episodes of Horror Bites, our indie horror showcase, drop every Thursday. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And finally, you can send emails to saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we have or are planning on covering in the future. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next Monday.